0: Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com.
1: I'm Paul. I am currently 61. I graduated high school in 1975. I grew up uh, in the suburbs south of Chicago. Specifically, Olympia Fields and Park Forest.
0: This interview was recorded in January of 2020 in Seattle.
1: When I was growing up, it was on the edge of the cornfields. Um, so, like, literally at the end of our street, there was corn. Um, and then there was this beautiful kind of upscale, uh, upper-middle-class development where a lot of uh, mostly Jews lived. So, yeah, I think it was pretty liberal. Uh, My family uh, is kind of bonkers, like many people's families, Jewish family. My father was pretty much not around. Um, I have very little memory of him. And when he was there, he was very uh, low-key, let's say. He He didn't volunteer a lot except he had this really big voice, um, which we called the Marshall voice. His first name was Marshall. And I have the voice, um, and I won't use it here because it'll break the windows, um, that when he was angry and he yelled your voice, you could hear it for blocks. So yeah, we just, the voice. My parents got divorced when I was, I think, nine, eight, eight. And I started to see a lot more of him then because he had weekend custody. My mom, Gert, was a very vivacious, charismatic, exquisitely profane woman, a lot of strong opinions. Um, I've got a lot of her in me, adored her. Um, I was probably the favorite, middle of five. She treated me really well. My sister is a hard boomer. She's eight years older than me. Then I got David, who's uh, five years older than me. And then another five years after me comes Robert, and then three years after him is the surprise kid, and that's Richard, who we call the little bastard. I officially came out in 1975, the day I moved out of my house into the dorms at college. I went and found, I think it was called the Gay Community Organization, GCO, at Northern Illinois University. I came back to the dorm, and I got on the payphone and I called my mom to tell her I was gay and okay so this is 1975 I have just turned 17. I'm in the dorms I'm 17 and uh, her response like a lot of a lot of kids responses is oh honey I knew it's okay I love you don't tell your father and she kept repeating that don't tell your father and I didn't and she did explicitly say he'll blame himself my dad passed away when I was 22 I'm guessing about 22 so it was only a few years later that he died when he died I took that as a signal that I was now to be out of the closet to everyone that the last person who I had made a bargain I had agreed with my mom I would never tell him so now I'm out to everyone and I've stuck to that ever since there's been no hiding whatsoever and I kind of regretted it. Uh, regretted never telling him, you know, for whatever good regret is worth. Um, I, I like to think that he would have come around eventually, and my mother, before she died, we, we talked about this a lot. We talked about everything before she died. She said, "Oh no, honey, He was different. He would not have, he would not have handled it well. So his loss <laughs> when I was a kid I was a very precocious reader uh, and we had a ton of books in the house and I was also a little kid in a snoop and I found in my parents bedroom which was of course off limits uh, if they weren't around I would root around through their drawers and they had nightstands so inside each of their nightstands were books and I remember some of the specific books one was Lenny Bruce's How to Talk Dirty and Influence People There was another one about drug addiction because my big sister um, had a problem but the one that stood out was love and marriage and love and marriage was a like a 60s era sex manual and I devoured it I devoured it I remember uh, just lying on my parents bed when they weren't there and just reading this book the most fascinating thing in the book was about what was happening with sexual intercourse and it gave descriptions of the pleasure associated with sexual intercourse. It had some drawings of penises and vaginas and I was like amazed by this. Just, just that This was what actually happened. And I was nine and I decided to simulate intercourse. So I went in the bathroom, I fabricated a vagina with my hands and some warm water and soap because I thought, okay, that's slippery and a, a vagina apparently is lubricated. Soaping up my hands and then creating a tunnel with my hands, with both hands, putting them on the edge of the sink and then putting my penis in and my penis was rock hard right away and, and just creating the motion thinking, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna find out what it feels like. And I had a sensation that I'd never had in my life, Um, just that exquisite tightening. And then I had an orgasm, and I ejaculated at nine years old. And I was so excited, so excited that I'd found this new thing that my body did, (laughs) and it was magic. And I masturbated several times a day just from then on. And maybe it's because I bloomed early that I hadn't had a talk from my parents yet or thought a whole lot about sex or ingested a lot of sexual shame somehow. But my immediate connection to masturbation was, this is great. There was just no, I I knew that I needed to keep it private, but it was mainly, this is great. And I just kept doing it. And I've been doing it ever since. My parents never took responsibility for telling me anything about sex. Not a word. There was no sex education in my school. But I can safely say that the information I got was credible. I got good information on my own. My Uh, mom and I could talk about sex. She died uh, six years ago. Horrible cancer. But as the time approached, we just opened up everything everything and we talked in detail about rain city jacks rain city jacks is a jack off club i'm the founder and manager she thought it was the coolest thing ever um she was just tickled (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome it was awesome Mm group of sex books that came out uh in the 70s everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask that was one of them little yellow book and uh it had some very problematic stuff in it um specifically about gay people there was a specific description of gay men going to bowling alley restrooms and it described them tapping their feet in the stalls and making shameful connections in the bathroom. Condemning it and saying how they were doomed to be unhappy their entire lives. Completely ignored all that stuff. I was focused on the restroom and the bowling alley. And suddenly I was like very aware of illicit sex. Dr. David Rubin introduced illicit sex to me. I suddenly imagined all these places that gay men were having sex there was like this curtain behind which I could not peek. And I was a teenager, I was really excited about sex. I I wanted to find out about that. So I started to get very excited about going into men's rooms. And I did have sex in men's rooms. Yeah, that actually became a part of my early sexuality because of Dr. David Rubin, you know, trying to scare people about it. It actually sexualized it for me. Mm So I've, I've always been an actor and a performer ever since I was a little kid. Just before my 15th birthday, I auditioned for a community theater production of The Boys in the Band. And uh, I lied about my age, and which was easy. I mean, I, I just pulled up my old yearbook photo from when I was 16, and I had a full beard. I looked grown up. So uh, I auditioned for this show. I got the part of Emery, who was the screaming queen. Did your parents know the content of the play? Yes. I'd always been precocious. So I get get the part in this show and it's a show about I think it's nine guys, a cast of nine or seven, at a gay party in the village. It's a birthday party and it is just this big, very catty affair and how one straight guy who's a friend of the birthday boy um, comes in and just all this drama ensues, it's just at a party. And when I turned 15, they found out how old I was. And apparently I heard there was a great deal of concern between the director and uh, somebody else on the staff about they were going to get in a lot of trouble for having this young kid in this show. And, and I'm glad they let me do it. Um, I got really good reviews. So I played Emery, and then there was another character named Larry and the guy playing Larry and I just had a lot of attraction to each other I was of course illegal (laughs) but I I was really into him and he was clearly into me um I I don't in retrospect know how that was okay but it was I guess um, for him for me it was fine but he he actually had a sleepover at my house and he was 19 or 20 So I'm 15, 19-year-old guy is sleeping over at our house. Um, I I don't know what my parents were thinking. Actually I think it was just my mom at that point. Um, She was probably strung out. I I know that there were a few years when she was drinking a lot. So that may have been my window of opportunity. And uh, he and I actually got to touch each other and, and I had my first experience of being sexual with another man and uh, it was amazing and I remember his dick was huge Um, I had no idea what to do with it I experimented there was no anal play whatsoever Um, but there was a lot of sensual touch um, that led up to some oral play Um, yeah it was great and I was really into him I don't remember a breakup Uh, I don't remember that we were ever officially boyfriends um, it's just there was this time that I was really into this guy and then I wasn't but you know the, the this is the late 60s early 70s there was a lot going on in American culture my sister was going to Kent State University my brother had his own drama going on we were all using drugs I started smoking pot when I was nine I dropped acid when I was 11. Um, this was this was, this was a group of kids that were really uh, diving headlong into the counterculture. I think bottom line my mom wasn't really afraid of sex. I think that might have been it. I think that's something I definitely picked up. I'm not afraid of sex. Mostly my approach to sex over the years has been uh, well let's check it out. Let's see what's going on. Let's see what this has to offer um, and following my desire. Uh, but yeah, I've never really been afraid of sex. Just of telling my dad. Sometime when I was a freshman in high school, I got interested in ballet. So uh, somebody told me that this girl, Mary, was way into ballet. She was a really good dancer and I met her And uh, we took some ballet classes together, and we started to hang out together. At that point, she was a freshman. I was a sophomore then. And um, she was an amazing dancer and really super whip smart and incredibly funny and so sexy and just very sexual. And she and I just hit it off big time as friends. And we started hanging out all through my sophomore year. And then sometime in the summer after my sophomore year, we started... We started playing around sexually and then we continued to be sexual together a lot of it was very playful i learned about eating pussy learned about having my dick sucked all from mary and there was always just a sense of lightness and humor and fun Um, we also smoked a lot of pot together she was the first woman i had sex with uh, the first vagina i've had a penis in Um, and she knew me better than i know myself And we persistently had sex play and I got a sense of sex as play from Mary because she had such a playful attitude about it. There was also no agreement of monogamy between us so I knew she was fucking other guys and I was completely okay with that although I was her official boyfriend and that went on through my junior year and into my senior year and in my senior year um, she started to be a little more interested in dating other guys but we never stopped being friends. And then for senior prom, she went with a different guy and I went with my best friend, Chris, a guy. Um, he's straight, um, we just we played guitars together um, and we just thought it would be fun to go to prom together as guys. <laughs> I'm sure I had some ulterior wanting to make a statement about being gay, but I had not made that statement to myself yet. And then when I was uh, in that first freshman year in college, she came up to, to stay with me in the dorms. And this was like right after I moved in. And she came up and I said, Mary, I'm gay. And she said, oh, Paul, I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad you figured it out finally. I've got to get laid. And she went And she went out onto the floor of my dorm and found a guy to fuck. And uh, he was the RA, he was the resident advisor. (laughs) And I was completely okay with them fucking because I had my own stuff to do now. Her sexual sensibility was a lot like a gay man in that it was very casual. It didn't rely on the structures of a relationship so much as being horny and just that it was okay to be horny and to act on that. And I'm I'm grateful to her for that. Having sex with Mary made it very clear to me that I'm about as 100% gay as I can imagine, but I have no problem with women or women's sexuality. The next person in my life who was to be a sort of a partner was JB, who I met in my first year of college. And we, I don't remember exactly how I met JB. Um, I was involved with this gay community organization. I think he was tangentially involved. I went to a lot of parties at this college. Um, just that's, that's how gay people got together there. There were no bars in the city. You had to go to Chicago. This is DeKalb, um, which is in the middle of the cornfields, uh, northwest of Chicago, So we had our own little community, and I I remember going to those parties, and uh, there was this one guy named Tennessee who would always play uh, Donna Summer's uh, Love to Love You Baby, and uh, we were dropping a lot of acid those days, doing a lot of drugs. But I met uh, JB, and he was a little guy, and kind of hairy, and very flamboyant, and very charismatic, and I... I was just gaga for him, like right away. I just, I wanted to eat him up. And he was a bastard. Uh, He was really into another guy who was not into him. So there was this dynamic of him being frustrated by not being able to be with the guy he was into, but he had this young pup, this 17-year-old who was obsessed with him, basically ready to do whatever he wanted we would get high a lot this was it's a repeating theme in my life from age 17 uh, to 31 i was pretty much high all the time every day um he would kind of torture me um just like lead me on and then push me away so he was driving me crazy he'd call me up and i'd go over to his his apartment and uh, we would make out but we didn't get to sex for a while it took a little while he would like get me get me excited and then send me home and he was doing it deliberately he was doing it specifically to push my buttons because he enjoyed manipulating at some point we did have sex and we had it a few times and it was intense um and it was fantastic because the, a lot of these things were things i'd never done before um i had never fucked a guy before and i got to fuck jb Uh, He wanted me to do it, and I figured it out. It wasn't that complicated, and I invested so much in just the fact that you're the first guy I've ever fucked, and I'm in love with you. And I, I remember at the time, I would go to the student bookstore, and I would buy these big canary notebooks and i would just write and journal and write poetry and so much of that was about jb um i think i still have some of those i'm afraid to dig them up and then the guy who he was into became aware of us and he started to come on to me in order to fuck with jb i don't think i had butt sex with david but we slept together doing probably a lot of oral at one point what happened i think we dropped some acid and jb like had a meltdown and burst into tears and threw me out and you know of course there was no perspective of like oh we're on acid right now um and i just decided i'm not going to see him i can't see him anymore he's driving me insane Um, I wish I had more detail than that. JB had this just torturous streak in him that he wanted, he got off on on toying with me and doing everything to just get me excited and then push me away. And he kind of broke my heart when he kicked me out. And I just thought, this is not for me. This whole dating thing is not for me. I really like the sex, but I don't like the dating. I think this all happened in my freshman year. So I'm 17 years old. By the time I turn 18, I'm done with relationships. But I'm all on board for sex. From that point on, any guy I dated, I kept at a distance. I, I didn't want to really get very involved. I didn't want to commit. And that became the theme of my life for a couple of decades. I just I was not going to get too close to anyone because guys were assholes. And they were going to hurt me. Um, and it wasn't even a matter of, I'm afraid of these guys. It was just a matter of, oh, I, you know, I've, I've been burned. I'm, I don't care to be burned again. I came out in 1975, right after I graduated from high school. There was a cu- cultural norm uh, among the gay community to just, just have sex, just enjoy this while we could. And having Stonewall only happening in 1969, there weren't a lot of long-term couples around us. Also, when you're in your 20s or your 30s, you're looking at folks in their 40s and 50s and they're trolls. So we would specifically look at folks in there who were older than us as trolls and put them down. And this is something we don't want to be even though that's where we're all obviously going. It's that immortality of youth, right? Um, so we didn't think about that. We didn't think a whole lot about pairing up. Marriage certainly wasn't a possibility. Our models were gay porn stars. We were defined by the sex we had, not by anything else. And older people in general were shunned. You know, So I was in this mainstream gay culture of taking drugs, having sex, going to sex parties, going to bars, going to bathhouses houses. Um, it was, it really was like a big party all through the 70s. HIV shows up in 81, I'm right in the middle of that. You know, before we knew there were consequences. And so we can do whatever we want. If you got VD, you could just take antibiotics and be done with it. So it was, there were no consequences. Men wanted to have a lover. Um, And that's what we called uh, our partners, lovers. That was the language we used. And it was something we wanted to have because we're fucking human beings. You know, we don't want to be alone. And we've got it. I I really do believe we've got a natural inclination to pair up to uh, we've got an inclination toward monogamy, not not fidelity, not sexual fidelity, but monogamy to have a partner. Um, So that's. Yeah, a little bit of dabbling with having a relationship and then fuck this. I'm just going to party. I'm just going to have fun. It was just this little window of time in history that I came out in in the middle of, literally in the middle of it. In 1981, I went to Boulder, Colorado and started working at the Boulder Dinner Theater. And this guy named Jeff uh, showed up and he was again kind of my type uh, shorter than me kind of hairy and he was a little goofy just he had a strange sense of humor and he, he, he always seemed to miss some jokes that other people had but he just had this intense sexual energy about him he, was, he had big dick energy uh, you could call it swagger but um, this is very explicit to people who have a big dick it's an explicit kind of swagger and it's different in different people with big dicks but Jeff had a big dick a big beautiful dick Uh, we would flirt with each other a lot in the process of rehearsals the first show we did together was grease (laughs) and I played a character named rump and I think he played duty rump and duty And the show we did after that was The Sound of Music. And I had a couple of different parts, but one of them was Herr Zeller. So I was a Nazi. I was also the only Jew in the production. And Jeff had another part, he was like supporting Nazi. (laughs) He was, I remember that uh, during rehearsals, we started to grope each other backstage. You know, he would grab my crotch and I would grab his and we would just feel each other up for a while and then just move on. And uh, Sundays we would do two shows so there was a matinee and a night performance one particular sunday we're in between shows we go out the back door of the theater and we found an alcove in the back uh by like an emergency door where he pulled out his penis and this fucking gorgeous penis and i just went down on him and we were both wearing our nazi uniforms and that's one of my favorite sexual moments ever um I, I don't fetishize Nazis, <laughs> I don't, I'm like not into uniforms. It was just so fun and hilarious. Um, I do get off on uh, the excitement of being so sexually turned on, so turned on that you don't even take your clothes off. You just get it out and get off together. And that was exciting. It wasn't long after that that we had an opportunity to get together at his apartment. He had me over and that's when I met his ferrets. We went to his bedroom and I remember he took his dick out and he kept his jeans on and he closed up his jeans so that his, his dick was just sticking out of his, his fly. And, and then he, he pulled my cock out of my fly as well. So we were both fully clothed but with our dicks out and we 69 for what felt like forever. And it was so different from what, what had happened behind, uh, behind BDT because there was no hurry. There was just the incredible charge of being really turned on by each other and taking our time with each other. The pace of lovemaking with him, and it really was lovemaking. It was, it was very much not about getting to an orgasm. It was about enjoying the moment together it was very much timeless sex it reminded me of that first time with ray in my bedroom when i had just turned 15 and we were just caressing each other and just you know feeling each other's penises through our pants and how incredibly hot and exciting that was fucking jeff and sucking his dick and 69ing with him, there's like, I, I don't generally like to 69, but with Jeff, it was, it was cosmic and there wasn't going to be a relationship there. But every now and then we would get together and it was magic for me because that sex was so good. And so much of it was so explicitly different from sex I was having somewhere else that it kind of went like, this is how sex is supposed to be. It's supposed to be really good, really powerful and really in the moment that kind of set the stage for how i am sexually going forward so from jeff i learned sex in the moment sex is a living experience as opposed to a process and a destination it's a now it's something that happens right now i still have a lot of sex with a lot of people but that colored my experience and my my way of having sex forever um he is also the first lover i had that died of aids and i found about it after the fact, when he found out how sick he was, he moved away from where he had lived this was in Colorado and he just he's just one of the people who disappeared because they were terrified and they were full of shame so they just it was like they just vanished um, and that that's what happened to Jeff. Aspen is a little town. It includes some of the richest people in the world. So there's a dinner theater in Aspen, or was, it's gone now, um, the venerable Crystal Palace. After Boulder Dinner Theater, I auditioned with some friends of mine uh, up there and I worked there for seven and a half years, living in Aspen, Colorado. I was a server at this theater. So I waited on all kinds of celebrities, I'd go to the movies and Goldie Hawn would be sitting next to me in the theater. That's a true story. Going to the grocery store and seeing Buddy Hackett. Um, This started in 1983. So HIV and AIDS is going. AIDS is ramping up all through the 80s. Um, I'm not thinking about it a whole lot um, because I'm not having a whole lot of sex then. Aspen was a tiny town and the people who lived there all knew each other. So... The guys who I was going to have sex with, I was pretty much having sex with and there wasn't a whole lot to be had. We were more interested in cocaine than we were in sex and the sex was kind of an adjunct to cocaine use. While I was doing a lot of cocaine, there was a guy at the theater I was working with who I really wanted to have sex with and he was also very into cocaine. We were both addicts and I had more supply because I was making more money. I used the cocaine to leverage his sexual willingness. I don't feel good about that, but that happened. And kind of paid me back without knowing it. But he was willing to fuck me if I kept giving him coke. And uh, it's interesting because I've never really been all that into fucking, but that's what he was willing to do. So there was one night. We were both coked out of our heads, got him to fuck me and he fucked me. And it, he had a kind of a smaller dick, but he went at it angrily. Right after that, I got a fissure, uh, which turned into chronic hemorrhoids. Well, I won't go into too much detail, but uh, it, it was bad enough to require surgery. And uh, so because of that angry fuck, um, I ended up years later with a brand new asshole. And it works great now, but for a long time it didn't. Um, I really think cocaine is just evil in a bottle. So I'm masturbating a lot, I'm doing a lot of cocaine and I'm going to the Explore Booksellers, which was this really cool little bookshop and coffee shop and then the magazine section was Honcho and Blue Boy and Mandate that also led to a lot of late night marathon masturbation sessions i would use the coke until it was gone so i would stay up sometimes for a couple of days at a time and i would masturbate over and over and over again and i also weighed 165 pounds i did not like how i looked in the mirror and there came a point when i was in aspen that i got into recovery that i started to do uh, narcotics anonymous meetings And I would go to NA and AA meetings every day, often twice a day. And I did that for about a year where I was always in a 12-step meeting. And I was working those steps. And I was 100% drug and alcohol-free from the day I started that through today. So I've now been clean and sober for over 30 years. So what happened after the Coke went away was my body started to wake up in ways that I hadn't been aware I had been suppressing. And one was that sex became uh, richer and deeper and more intense for me. And, and when I say sex, I'm talking about masturbating. Um, as far as I'm concerned, masturbation is sex. But I had these magazines that were starting to pile up. A couple of stories started to leap out at me from the pages. Um, the first one was in Honcho. I, I'm looking for a copy of this. But a detailed... Uh, an experience of being at a jack off club and all the hard dicks and guys stroking each other and standing in circles and and you know it just it created this whole scene in my mind that I just it was one of those moments where you like hear a little bell go off and you just think I want to do that. And I just latched onto it and it became uh like a regular masturbation fantasy. And I'd never been to one, I, I didn't know what they were called at that point, um, but that, that was like my fantasy life was all about, big rooms full of guys masturbating with each other and on each other and, and stroking each other's dicks. And just these big group scenes, it just, it was, it was electricity for me. So when I finally got to do it was when I moved from Colorado to Chicago in 1990. The day I arrived, I got a copy of the Chicago Weekly Reader and I went immediately to the personals and there was Chicago Jacks. And it said, I had to send mail with a photo of my driver's license and then they would get back to me to tell me where to go. And a few days later, I got a flyer with dates and an address. And it met in a little house in Wicker Park, that used to be owned by Chicago's Hellfire Club. I think they're the oldest leather community in the country. It was an old Veterans Administration Hall and they had an event every week. And I came up to the door and this tall person opened the door a little bit, asked me who I was and I told him who I was and what I was there for and he let me in and said, there are lockers downstairs and and refreshments and then upstairs is the play area. And they had a little bar set up down there where they were serving, uh, I think, beer and, and soft drinks and snacks. And people were just hanging out there naked, talking to each other. And uh, then I went up the stairs. I remember passing a big bowl full of little plastic cups full of lube. And I went up and it was just a, a big room Um, with all kinds of BDSM equipment on the walls, 40 different guys all milling around among each other, all naked, all stroking themselves and each other, um, sitting up on platforms and watching. I mean, it was just this big scene that I had imagined over and over again. And I'm 32, I'm in great shape, and I'm the new meat. So I get a lot of attention. And I remember one scene where i was standing and there were three guys around me one guy next to me was he was very blonde and very hairless i mean he had an amazing butt and i had my hand on his butt and all three of them were masturbating very close to me so i had like penis contact on both legs and then a guy right in front of me and one of them is stroking me and i'm stroking both of them and it's just all this is going off and suddenly they're coming on me And the sensation of their semen dripping down my legs and hitting my stomach is like a moment I've relived ever since. So for almost 30 years now, it was so awesome. And I started to go there every single week. There's lots of ways that masturbation is considered not sex, substitute sex, loser sex, and that people should not do it. There's been so much pressure to not masturbate so much of it from religion, but it's not just religious now. It's just part of the culture and part of just some of the fucked up ideas we have about sex. And there came a moment in my life where I decided, there's nothing wrong with this. This is fundamentally a good thing. It's not subtracting anything from my life. I feel good about myself. And my decision was, I'm going to say yes. Saying yes to masturbation was a life decision. It was. It, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. And just affirming that, it, it was transformative for me. And it's not even about masturbation itself. It's about my desire to be sexual. My desire to experience sexual joy is good. It's, it's good in a really fundamental human way. And I recognize that. I affirm it all the time. I think that anybody who doesn't think so is wrong. Raid City Jacks has a mission statement. And in that mission statement are the words to recognize the fundamental goodness of our sexual impulse. So I took my personal philosophy and I infused it in the club itself. I wanted to like codify it. to, to, To basically say sex is good, it is fundamentally good, and we're going to recognize that. So... That's, that's, that's part of the whole energy that I hope uh, is infused in the organization. My husband and I met in 1991 and we were sexually exclusive for 10 years and only had sex with each other. That was the only time I have ever been sexually exclusive. Um, and it was my idea, which still shocks me. But toward the end of that time, I started to have an experience which has become more pronounced as I've gotten older that I don't reliably ejaculate every time I have sex. And this showed up when I was having sex with my husband. And he started to become concerned that it was him, you know, that I was losing interest in him. And the truth was it was taking me longer to come. And I had to admit that I can't come all the time now. That was a really big deal when I had to come to terms with it just a shift in my body i was embarrassed by that because i had to adjust to no longer being a model of healthy sexuality i think i still am but at that point part of that was ejaculating and that that was a signal to my partner It was like here's the proof that you have turned me on you know boom you gave me this orgasm now, i'd already like disabused myself of that idea you know we share our sexuality in the same space. We share a lot of energy, we share so much, but you don't give me an orgasm. I give you my orgasm. I believe that is the truth. You know, you open yourself up to be available for it and then if all things physical are there, then great. You're doing that. <laughs> um, and I didn't know that. I felt like my illusion of, one of my illusions, of who I was and what I was about was just cracked a little bit at that point and I had to redefine myself. And we do that all through life. Oh boy. My best move. Gosh. I I have trouble with this one. I'd say my truly best move is in knowing what's going on in my partner's body immediately during and after orgasm even if it's a stranger that they're flooded with oxytocin and they want to cuddle they may not know it but given the opportunity the invitation to come into an embrace to come into a a warm fuzzy place even just for a few seconds they're going to go for it and it's it's what takes an orgasm and makes it satisfying Um, Because that's what we're demanding chemically. um, I see sex as hacking our body's chemistry. We're setting off the drugs that we are supposed to be taking, which are the drugs we manufacture. All the amphetamine-like substances that go into arousal, the opiate-like substances that that, that explode after an orgasm. It's like there's so many things going on in our bodies. We physiologically change during sex. You know, your body actually changes its shape when you're nearing orgasm. It's awesome to behold. Um, And I behold it all the time. But that moment of orgasm and ejaculation, there's like this big shift in chemistry. Um, I think it's oxytocin. It's the cuddle hormone. You're flooded with it. You want to relax and you want to come in for that connection. So... To me, my best move is the one that brings satisfaction to a sexual experience, whatever it is. If, if you come while I'm fucking you, if you come while I'm jacking you off, if you come when I'm sucking you off, I'm going to then come in for an embrace. I'm going to invite an embrace. And almost all the time, guys will go for it. They'll, they'll go for a little bit of closeness. Again, it's not a big thing. It's not like a trick that I play on guys. It's just it's a follow through where you don't like hurry up and get, a, get something to mop up with. You stay with them for a minute and you let yourselves just be people, just people in a warm, exciting, relaxing place. And the, there's something about that that's really completing about it. We've got this whole soup of sex negativity that we live in and, and getting out of that soup and getting into a place where you can live a really joyful life around your sex life, you have to go through all that shit. There's just so much there and and we're not aware of most of it. So whatever it is, you've gotta deal with it and it sucks, it hurts, it's hard um, in big and little ways and it doesn't matter whether it's a big or little way, um, you don't get out of it until you go through it. Um, for me it was having You know, a couple of obsessive relationships where I got used and tortured and I was never physically abused. Thank God I know survivors of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and holy shit, that's a lot worse than anything I had to deal with. Um, But the pathway is the same. You have to deal with the shit in order to get out of the shit. When my dad died i was very 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 deep in my coke at the time so i was not available for any kind of authentic feeling and i did not go to the funeral i i was not present and i wasn't going to experience grief until i got off the drugs and i did <laughs> you know years after he passed away i got off the drugs and a few weeks after being clean and sober I was talking to my brother about my dad and I just I broke down and shocked shocked that the grief had waited for me and um, I learned that the grief waits so when my mom was dying I was committed to be there and to be all in a hundred percent in so I spent months you know with her helping with her treatment, talking with her. It was amazing, powerful, incredibly painful. Far more painful for her than for anyone else. Literally painful. But emotionally it took a toll. And there came a day, um, this was in Colorado Springs, very, very conservative, religious conservative place. So my mother's this Jewish firebrand liberal in the middle of Colorado Springs. And so... I have to get away for a little while and I discovered that there was a bathhouse in Colorado Springs and I went there and there were very few people there but I had been like shaken to my roots from just extended time with my dying mother and I walked into that place you know this very (laughs) unassuming little bathhouse kind of in a warehouse and i stepped out into the hot tub which was out on the back deck um, which was a parking lot surrounded by a fence and there's like music playing and i'm all alone in this big hot tub and i'm naked and i'm just stretched out and i just think oh my god i'm so glad i have my life to come back to in this moment and then i connected with another guy and we had great sex and it was incredibly intense and i just thought Sex has a way of connecting me back to my life in a way that nothing else can, and it fortified me. Sex actually helped me survive. And I went back there one other time during those months. And I wasn't horny. I wasn't horny, I just needed to get back in my own body and to take full possession of myself, and sex does that for me. I've been with my husband since 1991 that's over 28 years and um, we're very much in love with each other I feel like just the luckiest boy in the world you know to quote Pee Wee Herman Um, so we had been sexually exclusive for 10 years and there came a day in the early 2000s like that I spied him with a cruising site on his computer monitor and I thought oh. And I went and I looked at it and suddenly the idea of having sex with someone else popped up into my head. And um, two months later I was riding the L in Chicago home and it was late at night and it was just me and another guy, this is such a porn scene. Um, and he, I was sitting, he was standing not too far from me and he was looking directly at me and rubbing his penis uh, through his pants, which was very obvious. And I was so turned on, oh my God. Cause not only was this a very hot scene, but it was super transgressive. So I started to spread my legs and display myself to this guy and I'm rubbing my penis And he's rubbing his and he's fully hard now and i can see right through his slacks and we both get off at my stop which is just two blocks from our apartment and we step into the the station and he goes down on his knees he pulls my cock out and he he sucks me off and i come so hard and as soon as i come so hard i am crushed with guilt just crushed and i thought oh my god this is i just cheated so it it, i went very quickly from the concept of non-monogamy to i was open to a sexual experience and there it was and i went for it Um, i could have easily easily not done that but i did it and i came home and i hid it i didn't say anything about it and i continued to cruise online this was such a shift so we'd, we'd, we'd been together for 10 years and suddenly I'm hiding something from my husband. And it's such a a big thing, just the hiding. We've never fought. We had never fought. We agreed about pretty much everything. We had different tastes about some things. We would negotiate together, but in general, our relationship has always been really easy. And he was doing it too. He had hooked up with somebody uh, who he met on that site And I had started to exchange messages with people and our energy had changed so much, so radically. Eric called me in to our living room. Um, This had only been going on a couple months now, maybe four months. And he said, I think we need to talk about something. And I said, I think we need to talk about something too. And then he said the best thing he could have possibly, he said, he said, okay, I want you to tell me everything, and I will tell you everything. But let's agree right from the beginning that we want to stay together. And then he said, you want to stay together, right? And I said, of course I do. I, I want to stay together. He said, okay, then let's just say that's true. We agree to stay together no matter what. Now tell me everything. And that's when we told each other, that just in the space of a few months, we'd both been cruising and starting to have sex with other people and cheating. And we cried, I'm like ready to cry now just remembering it. And just having that safe ground of, we're going to stay together, I felt like I was in a safe space to put it all out there because I did not want to hide anything from him because that just that's poison. And we decided to be non-monogamous to have sex with other people, to try it. So all the sex we've had from that day has not been cheating. <laughs> and it's been really phenomenally powerful for us. It, it made us a stronger couple. Um, I have no other life partner in my life. I don't believe I ever will as long as Eric's alive. But sex has slowly fallen off for us and we rarely do it at all anymore. And I'm... I'm sad about that but I don't feel less close to him. I just miss that connection and we have to do it every now and then just to remind ourselves that we can but it's we've slowly moved away from having sex with each other and having sex with other people instead um, and having this life together instead, our day-to-day life, our crises, um, our family, like that's all intact but sex is very rare for us now. When I first came out, hooking up was about eye contact more than anything else. You would just make eye contact. There would be that moment of excitement. Did that mean what it meant? You'd pass each other. And then if you looked back at each other and you were both looking back, it's like, that's a yes. And then you're off to the races or to someone's apartment or to an alley. That was hooking up. For me personally, hooking up has always been kind of easy, but. Hooking up now, I have very little patience for the way people hook up these days. I am an old man. I have no patience for chit chat with uh, apps. I want to either chat with someone or I want to have fucking sex with them. But when I have sex with them, I want to have a human connection with them too. So it's not like I just want your penis. I want some indication that, I, that somebody turns me on. So I tend to not use apps. I'm at Rain City Jacks every single fucking week. Every week, there are 12 brand new members, on average, at every single event. It's a huge percentage. That's, we had almost 500 first-timers all of last year. So I have a parade of, in real life, fresh meat in front of me. And the whole reason I started the club was because I wanted a Jackoff Club to go to. When Eric and I decided to become non-monogamous... My question was, what now? I didn't want another husband. I didn't want a new partner. I got one, and I'm completely happy. I just wanted sex. I just wanted to have more play. I wanted to have a jack-off club, and ultimately in 2005, which is just a few years after we decided to go uh, non-monogamous, I formed Rain City Jacks. I just wanted friendly sex that was not going to give me a bug that wasn't gonna make me sick. Prep didn't exist. And now I don't, that's how I hook up. I make friends there. There are some guys who I connect with who I wanna do more than just masturbate. I want to suck their dick. I might wanna fuck them, I might want them to fuck me. I'm curious, um, because you have this unique perspective, do you think that now now that we're in the age of prep and there is this more relaxed attitude about condom use does it have any comparison at all with what it was like in the 70s when you first came out and it was that sort of sweet spot between the revolution and and AIDS um yes and no what's different a lot of things are different um obviously technology well gay identity is different Mm. um so our very sense of who we were who we are um has changed we had um as a gay man in the 70s, um, you might have had some lesbian friends, but you you did not have trans friends, you know you might you might have known some drag queens, but trans people were not on the table um, so we had not gone to lgbtq etc so there was like a clarity to that you mean yes there was a there was a focus. Yes. So the world of, of gay sex was our world. you know. It was, it was gay men. And it was, it was as big as, as whatever city you were in. And it was a very specific niche. Now, within that, there were little degradations of different kinds of kinks you might be into, different kinds of attitudes. The, uh, bars had different flavors. They still do. And you're, you would find your tribe in a certain bar you know with with the twinks you know or with the leather guys um and there's lots of that still kind of echoing but there's been a big change in the culture in general in that we're no longer by ourselves in on the playground it's now about finding each other as individuals more as just well we're all in the same tribe so let's fuck there was a simplicity to that which I kind of like it better now Partly because that idea of this monolithic gay culture that the gay community was monolithic. There was this illusion that we all had one mind, one way of thinking, and that's never been true. Gay people are in every social class, every political ideology across the spectrum with all these different kinds of people. So that was an illusion. Our community now involves a whole lot of people that we have no sexual connection with. It's just that we're not conventional. So I like it better, but we have to find our own communities or make them ourselves. You know, for me, the choral community, jack off clubs definitely have a thing to offer. There is a better community, uh, guys who value masturbation above all else. Like you find your niche and you go there. Um, But yeah, it's no longer, when it was the gay community, it was much more about hooking up. The gay community in the 70s, it, with all our differences, we were drawn together by all the forces opposing us, which were really um much more powerful and much stronger you know, fucking anita bryant um and all the different people like her who represented her yeah we we were prote- we were in a safe space against our enemies, and that helped us to get past our differences. but we had this illusion of being one community. We've never been one community. I don't regret anything. I don't regret my parents never telling me anything about sex. I don't regret that fucker, JB, in college who was such an asshole. I don't regret cheating. I've been okay from the beginning. I don't think there's anything I could have told my younger self that would have made my life better than it is now. My life is so fucking good.
0: Fruit Bowl interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive and watch original videos. Help support Fruit Bowl's efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and occasional bonus content. Larger donations and sponsorships are tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal sponsorship with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Syra B. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.